the following episode of Geeks and Beats contains language or subject matter that may be unsuitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. Alan, you can hear me? I can. Okay, Tyler, you can hear me? I can. We can all hear each other? We can. <laughs> this is a live-to-air show, so the swearing's not going to get bleeped. We're good with that? I'm down with it. Have we ever bleeped the swearing? Actually, no, we haven't. We haven't bleeped any of that shit. I don't think so. <laughs> all right, stand by. Here we go. Live from Studio 3B. Now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes, Spotify, and GeoCities. This is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Featuring musical guests, Sting. The 1990s, when Canadian rock music finally grew up. Documentary filmmaker and podcaster Tyler Ellenick joins us with his project Rave and Drool. I'm back from visiting Abbey Road Studios on Abbey Road in London, in St. John's Wood. I'll tell you what Ringo Starr taught me about playing the drums. Plus, we've landed one sponsor that'll help send us to CES 2020. Now it's up to Alan. Me? It's all on you. Ladies and gentlemen, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Amber Healy at Geeks asks, has there ever been a better time for Canadian rock bands than in the 1990s? Natural selection, I've avoided all detection and the tender bits underneath. was the Canadian rock finally, or Canadian music as a matter of fact, finally came of age after a couple of really tough um, decades adjusting to the CanCon rules. These were rules created in 1971 as not only a cultural protection strategy, but also an industrial strategy, because we had no music industry in this country prior to then. But once radio was mandated to play a certain percentage of Canadian music, then an industry had to grow up around it. So we needed recording studios and producers and managers and venues and promoters and agents and all those things that went into creating a Canadian music industry. And it took about 20 years before things matured enough so that we could actually compete on the world stage on a consistent basis. And that really began in the 1990s. It's funny you should say that because because of the Canadian content rules that were on the radio it was what one third one, one out of every three songs had to be canadian at least that's the way it was at the beginning yeah 30 percent. you know and that led to like every time <laughs> you turned on the goddamn radio it was ann murray it was gordon lightfoot <laughs> it was bruce freaking coburn that's all we had we had a very shallow pool of canadian talent right so that's my point is that so then whenever i heard canadian band i always sort of tuned it out because i thought oh this is just you know more corporate welfare transferred into the musical welfare world we're just propping up musicians who can't compete against americans because they're not as good as americans and that was the the argument for many many years because in many cases it was true beneath 
because the stuff that we were forced to play on the radio was substandard. It was not up to world-class standards. Oh, Rita McNeil, we don't need another Christmas special. <laughs> you know, as Amber points out, in the 90s, you got bands like Age of Electric, The Headstones, I, Mother Earth, The Odds, The Watchmen as well, of which they are a friend of the big show. So I suppose it's no surprise that someone thought maybe what we need here is a documentary that shows off just how cool Canadian rock bands could be. There was this explosion, and it wasn't just in the quality of the music and the number of bands, but it was also in the demand by Canadian audiences. Suddenly there was this nationalistic appetite for homegrown Canadian talent, and the nation, and these were all Generation X people, who decided that we were going to embrace homegrown Canadian talent on a level that we had never seen before. Kind of starts with the bare naked ladies and the tragically hip, but by the time we're into the middle 90s, we have Art Lady Peace and I Mother Earth and, you know, The Watchmen and all these other bands who are capable of drawing lots and lots of people to shows who are capable of putting on their own traveling music festivals and selling records by the hundreds of thousands, if not the millions. And by the end of the 90s, Canada is considered to be a musical powerhouse because we have Shania Twain, we have Alanis Morissette, we have, you know, any, uh, any number of huge selling acts uh, that are punching on a, on a world-beating level. So joining us now is the mastermind behind Rave and Drool. It's a social media presence, but also an in-progress documentary. And on September 22nd, Rave and Drool, the podcast, was released. Joining us now is the man behind it, Tyler Ellenick. Good to have you with us. Yeah, good to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Okay, this is a labor of love. You're a radio guy. You finally figured out that the world needs to know more about Canada, and you've, you've embarked on this documentary. Actually, to correct the record there, I'm actually not a radio guy. Oh, I uh, thought you were. You're a record store guy, aren't you? I was a record store guy when I conceived of the idea, and the way Alan gets that radio idea is because... Our local newspaper, the Journal Leader Post, photographer thought it'd be very musical to uh, photo for photography in front of the, the radio board at the local station. So that's why that kind of got out there. But yeah, not a radio guy, was a film guy, actually. So as a film guy, you're leaning on that expertise for building a documentary. Right. I mean, when I conceded the idea, I was working at a record store. I had just gotten back from traveling Europe and needed a job and I was one of the older guys at the store and I was working a dead Thursday night or something with another one of the older guys at the store who just kept the job so we could get a discount on CDs, right? <laughs> and we, he was actually in, in media at the time and he just kept that one day a week or one day a month just to get that discount. And then we were just talking about, about all these old bands from our high school years and you know, we were kind of wondering how the records were selling. So we just kind of looked on the database and, you know, to my surprise and to his, we found that a lot of them not only weren't selling, but they were out of print. So you could even buy them if you wanted to. So at that point, I just kind of started, you know, hours of kind of internet searching, kind of what, you know, kind of what happened to kind of idea. And I found like a lot of these bands kind of seemed to stop at the same time which I kind of felt interesting and that's really started to wonder why. Like, you know, again, Darvis, for example, had their biggest record in 98 and there wasn't a follow-up to it. You know, Watchmen's last record, 2000, Moist, over, you know, same kind of time. So Age of Electric, another one, gone. 
because I just actually talked to Todd Kearns last night about it, and he said the same thing. He was looking through an old Edgefest program, and he was like, you know, the same thing. He's like, that guy was gone back when, before these bands had reunited, like Tea Party was gone as well. So it was just kind of uh, embarked on this journey to kind of find out why it all kind of seemed to stop at the same time. Well, a lot of these bands came out at the same time, late 80s, early 90s, and a good run for any band is seven or eight years. Is that the lifespan of an average band? It is, actually. If you look at the Beatles, they were around for about seven years at their at their peak. Uh, the Clash lasted for about seven years. I got that information from Don Letts, a confidant of the, of the Clash, and he's done a lot of talking about how the fact that you know, from, from formation to rise to your peak to dissolution is about seven years. And, and a lot of these Canadian bands did extraordinarily well. Over that seven to ten year period, they played a lot of shows, they put out a lot of records, they sold a lot of records and concert tickets and t-shirts, and were on much music quite a bit. But, you know, after ten years, if you're starting your band and you're 19 or 20, by the time you get to the end of a decade, you're 30, 31, and, you know, life intrudes, and maybe maybe it's time to move on to do something else, which is what a lot of these bands ended up doing. Some of them did not. I mean, Our Lady Peace continues today. Our I'm Mother Earth went their separate ways, but got back together. The Tea Party uh, kind of splintered, but are, are still together today touring. So uh, it's it's maybe, you know, I would say 75% of them disappeared, uh, but 25% of them managed to soldier on. So Tyler, you're using the podcast as a way of leveraging all of these people you've been talking to to convince the film and television industry that this is worthy of a documentary that they should be funding. Yeah, let, 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 me, let me just jump in here. Okay, this is an extremely, <laughs> I think this is an extremely worthwhile project. I it am, sounds like you got a manager now, Tyler. Yeah, hey, I'll take it. I am shocked that no one has jumped on this with you, whether it be, you know, one of the big uh, broadcasting conglomerates or uh, a documentary production company. It is. It just screams. First of all, it screams tax credits, <laughs> which is everything you need to know about the Canadian film industry. Right. But exactly. it also it also screams, um, you know, general interest. This is the kind of thing that you know anybody should jump on simply because it would help them fill their own CanCon quotas for <laughs> things like TV. So what's what's the problem, Tyler? Why won't anybody back you? You sound like the voice inside my head. That's exactly what I'm screaming at almost daily. I know. It's crazy. I mean, we've had a ton of meetings, you know, a ton of almost meetings with various people, and people get interested to a point, and then they kind of lose interest. And, for, and I just don't understand why either, because there seems to be such a wide demographic, a wide audience. People still love the music, still love the bands. I mean, Watchmen can still go out and play to sold out shows and they haven't put a record on in 20 years, you know? And then, and to your point, I mean, it's a world, it's a national story. It's not just specific to one uh, area. And uh, yeah, it's a bit of a mystery myself. I mean, it's just kind of working on it to a point where we need to get it past Passion Project and into something where broadcasters are kind of, you know, financing a little bit or interested in it. Because we've kind of written it up both ways where it could be a feature film or it could be like a four-part series. So we kind of have both those areas kind of um, cornered. So it's just interesting that we haven't gotten that green light yet. I, I, you know, I spent a lot of time searching through documentaries on Netflix, and there were dozens and dozens and dozens of them, and some of them are so niche so specialized in what they deal with, and here's something 
that would appeal to, you know, not only a national audience in Canada, but a, a, an international audience, because a lot of these bands are of, of, of international renown. And I just, somebody's not thinking clearly. That's, that's all I got to say. <laughs> I suppose, though, that while you're still building out that passion project in the form of the actual documentary, being able to talk to these people one-on-one -on -one in a podcast format gives you the ability to dive down rabbit holes that you wouldn't be able to do if you were focused on a documentary that had a specific story arc to it. Absolutely. I mean, the stories can get much more, like you said, a lot deeper into that band's career themselves, that member of the band's kind of memories of what that was like and get like a little bit more personal so they could tell like an anecdote like our first episode was with uh, ken kelly the monoxides and he's he talked of how they got the name the Mon monoxides but when him and him and the singer were little kids running through his mom's carbon monoxide outside the driveway you know he's like we're gonna be called the monoxide someday and it was like yeah that's a great story but ne not necessarily would have found time to put in like you know a, you know, a, a series or a, a film where it has to work towards a larger concept or larger story. So the podcast is great that way. And considering what monoxide does to your brain, it's amazing <laughs> that he even remembered that story to tell you. Yeah, I, I'm going to... Okay, here's more proof why we need this. I've done a series of ongoing history of new music programs on where are they now, Canadian artists from the 90s or the 80s or wherever. They are among the most popular and the most downloaded podcasts and radio shows that I've done. In fact, I've got another one coming up a little bit later on this year because the demand for it is so high. So again, <laughs> anecdotal information from me saying that there is a genuine appetite for all these stories. We were for a very long time terrible at documenting our own musical heritage. We lived for the British. We lived for the Americans. We didn't think that talking about our stuff outside of Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and a few others was worth telling. Yeah, the CBC had cornered the market on Rita McNeil. <laughs> you got this thing about Rita, don't you? That's twice now, yeah. Oh, my goodness. It is. <laughs> yeah, clearly I do. I just, so, I to get some flashbacks to, you know, bad childhood holidays. So, the, you know, I, I think the podcast is a brilliant idea because it allows you to do these deep dives and to bring out all this information that is otherwise would be lost. Uh, and it fosters this this new interest as to I mean there there the 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 interest in Canadian music today whether it be indie or major label is so huge that there are people who want to go back and find out where all this came from and there is such a rich heritage there that needs to be mined so go Tyler go well appreciate that sir yeah yeah exactly I mean I'm hoping not only to um re-energize you know people of my age i mean i'm 41 so i was right in the high school right trying to sneak into glue leg gigs at the you know at the bar right and got busted but you know not only you know people i, I tweet and i share posts and they're like oh yeah i forgot about that tune forgot about that tune so not only those people but also like to your point you know the new generation of people who are, are looking for where you know broken social scene came from where billy talent came from where arcade fire like they're you know, where what scene did those bands emanate from? And, you know, where did the weekend come from? You know, what was the history before that? And I think that, you know, things like the podcast and our Spotify playlist kind of uh, introduces people to some music they might not be familiar to, with. I 100% totally agree. Um, and I lost my train of thought uh, because too much carbon monoxide. <laughs> nice callback. Would you say that music, Canadian rock music today, is 
less or more popular than what we got in the 90s? Did we peak in the 90s, basically? It's just it's such a tough question to, to, to answer now just because of the vast avenues where people get music. I mean, there's no... I mean, back in the day, there was... Chart magazine. Rita McNeil. Yeah, there was. There oh, also was sorry, we're going out of three. Rita McNeil and friends had some decent acts on there back in the day. So don't <laughs> don't slag her too hard, man. She had head on back in the day with two H's. She had slow. Oh, okay. So no, she right. had she had a little uh, little little. Wait, uh, wait, wait, wait. Head was on with Rita McNeil. Head was on with Rita McNeil. Indeed. No. Yes, and Noah Mintz is wearing like two long braids. It's awesome. He actually threw the video up on YouTube where Rita, Rita McNeil does a little intro about speaking about head and her little you know Rita McNeil voice is fantastic see and a lot and of here's it- a fun fact which I learned sorry to interrupt but a fun fact about Rita McNeil like I'm not sure if this was every episode but I was listening to I think another podcast with somebody on there from the 90s and they said they were so jazzed to play Rita McNeil and they got there and they're like where's Rita where's Rita right and they're like she's in tape till tomorrow so they had to tape their stuff on a separate day and then Rita McNeil taped her intro which is I found shocking it blew my mind, the magic of television, I guess. My next guests have been playing together for four years. Popular on college radio and in clubs across Ontario, Head hit the big time with their third release, Jerk. Their sound is usually described as alternative rock, but there's a clarity to their music and lyrics that sets them apart. Now that their album has also been released in the U.S., they'll start preparing to tour there next month. Please welcome Head. So she wasn't even there. Wasn't even there, at least for that particular one. I don't know. Shocking. Going back to this idea of putting these videos up on online, um, first of all, these are unauthorized rips, so there is a chance that that YouTube will take them down. Secondly, they're old NTSC, um, very, very low-definition rips, and they look awful. Uh, and the record companies, the publishers, are basically letting them stay up there because, well, they're not hurting anybody, and they're maybe helping a little bit of the back catalog sales or, or streams or whatever. But I know that there are there's at least one major label that is starting to uh, re, uh, re-upload higher definition versions of these old videos instead of these old much music rips. So uh, there is a, there is a groundswell of, of interest in this sort of thing. And it's not just coming from people like you and me and, and a few others. It's, it's the, the record labels are starting to realize that there's this, this catalog of material that extends back 30, 40, maybe even 50 years that really deserves to be put up online for everybody to access. Yeah, to really preserve like a moment in time and a moment, like, and to your point about celebrating, you know, what we did, not just, you know, what the States did or what the UK did during that time or during any time. So yeah, it's, it's, I'm glad to hear that. Tyler, thank you so much for your time. All the best to you with the podcast, the social media presence, and of course the documentary too. Well, thank you so much guys for your support and and having me on and talking about 90s Can Rock, because you know that's my favorite subject, so it was great to hear two masters give their thoughts on the air as well. It was great. We got to get this. Got to get this thing made. It's, it would be a crime if it wasn't. I know you've done a whole bunch of work already on the project. You just need money to finish it, and then you need money to market and 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 put it someplace. This has got to be done. Somebody has to take care of it. Tyler Elnick is the documentarian behind Rave and Drool, the podcast, the documentary series, and of course, check him out on social media as well. He joined us from Regina. I'd like to be under the sea. In an octopus's garden in the shade He'd let us in 
knows where we've been in his octopus's garden in the shade. I'd ask my friends to come and see. So, you went to Abbey Road Studios for the big 50th anniversary? I did. I was the only Canadian invited to hear the 50th anniversary reissue of Abbey Road, which came out on September the 26th, 1969. And just like they've been doing for all the other Beatles albums, Giles Martin, son of George, has gone through the old original multi-track tapes and cleaned everything up, giving it a 21st century shine and uh, released it to the public. Now, a lot of people are, are looking at these reissues and going, well, why are you doing that? They were perfect to begin with. You wouldn't touch up a Picasso, would you? Well, it's kind of like this. If you have a window looking out over your backyard and it's dirty, you don't really notice the dirt until somebody cleans it from inside and out, and then all of a sudden more light comes in, more colors come in, and it just looks better. That's basically what Giles Martin has done with, with these records. He did get a lot of stick for some of the liberties he took with the uh, the Sgt. Pepper album. But with Abbey Road, this was the Beatles' final record. They had recorded Let It Be before then, wasn't ready. It came out after Abbey Road, but that's neither here nor there for this. This was the first record that they recorded exclusively in stereo. This was the first record that they used a solid-state recording console exclusively instead of an old tube thing. And it was the first record that they did in 8-track. So... Technologically, compared to all the other Beatles albums, this one was pretty well advanced. But the problem was that when the record came out, people were listening to this on AM radio or they were listening on portable record players with cheap plastic tone arms. So you couldn't master the records with all the full frequency splendor that you had available at your fingertips because you couldn't put all that bass into the grooves. It would cause the cheap plastic tone arm to jump all over the place. And there was no point in putting a lot of high frequencies on it because, well, AM radio couldn't reproduce that. So, And I, I think that's actually a very critical point, too. You point out that there's an evolution in the technology and the recording side of the equation. But remastering this music was, I can imagine, very important because the way we're listening to music and the methods by which we're getting the sound into our earballs has dramatically changed since the days when kids were you know sitting in their bedrooms playing Beatles records late at night hoping mom and dad couldn't hear them because then they had headphones on underneath the covers well not even headphones they had those ear pieces you know those little plastic things that you stuck in your ear is usually just one of them mm. rather than stereo right so we are remastering this because we have dramatically improved the technology for listening as well as recording yeah the playback stuff so what Giles did was he went back to the original multi-track master tapes and using a lot of 21st century wizardry and witchcraft, cleaned them all up and um, you know removed all the tape hiss, brought out the bass, added uh, you know found all these little subtleties in the orchestration and some of the overtones and things like the drums, and and brought that out for for everybody to hear. So I was there at Abbey Road Studios last Thursday. This would be the 26th, the actual 50th anniversary of the release of the album. They set up a bunch of chairs in Studio 2, which is where the Beatles did most of their work. And Giles and everybody at Abbey Road had uh, built this Dolby Atmos rig. 
So if you've been to a movie theater and heard, heard a, you know, enjoyed a movie in Dolby Atmos, you know that there's uh, center, left and right at the front. There is a subwoofer. There is left and right at the back. And then a whole bunch of fill speakers. I think I heard Abbey Road through, I'm going to guess, 32 channels. And it was... Okay, that... Okay, I, bit overkill. But, but, but just a little, do yeah. you think? Like, I, I would understand stereo. I would even understand 5.1 surround. But to go as far as Dolby Atmos... And, and you know what I'd really like to do is I'd really like to play a track and see if anybody could really tell the difference. Between it is going to be very hard to tell in with the fidelity that we have with our podcast. Uh, it, it, it is. But I can tell you that even if you were to... Like, a lot of people are going to be listening to this record on vinyl. Oh, 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 so you spend all this time and energy to make the audio crystal clear perfect, and then you put it on a record. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's still crystal clear. With hiss. Almost perfect. You know, they, it's coming out on, on, on Blu-ray, or it's out on Blu-ray, so that's 96 kilohertz, 24-bit uh, sampling. So that's that's really high resolution, and it will sound fantastic. You play it on a home theater system, oh, my God. Uh, but even if you play it, a, a vinyl record on two-track stereo, again, unbelievable definition, unbelievable immersion in into this music. I, I it, was, it was really freaky and cool to be able to hear something that sounded so... Good. All right, so now that anyone under the age of 50 is no longer listening, shall we get rid of everybody else by going to the Geeks and Beats news update? Uh, did you want to hear about my talk with Ringo Starr? Oh, that's right. I got to sit down with Ringo Starr for a little while, and he gave me a drum lesson. I was always really confused about how he played certain things, certain fills and certain songs, and he explained to me how he did it because... Well, okay, it works this way. Ringo was born naturally left-handed, but his grandmother kept rapping him on the knuckles and forcing him to write with his right hand. Uh, but for all the other things, like darts, lifting a pint, uh, playing pool, playing golf, he was always left-handed. When he started to play drums, he would often borrow other people's kits, and those kits were almost inevitably set up for a right-handed player. So he's a naturally left-hander playing a right-handed kit. But when he goes to play some fills, he always leads with his left hand. And that makes all the difference in the world when it comes to the subtleties of how the the fill is played. So he gave me a bit of a drum lesson. It was cool. Wow. Yeah. Paul, Paul McCartney never showed up even though he lives around the corner? Here's the problem. I was uh, an idiot because I went to the very first listing session at 9.30 in the morning. I didn't realize that there would be additional listing sessions throughout the day. And had I thought I could have probably gone to the 8.30 p.m. listing session at which both Ringo and Paul showed up. Sad trombone. Yes, very sad trombone. Y'all still want me to come with you? Our quest to get to CES 2020 just took another leap forward, my friend. It did? Yes. How? We got a $2,500 sponsorship from the Auto Parts Manufacturers Association of Canada. 
Uh, These are the guys who are going to let us use their booth at CES to broadcast live. How did you manage this? These are the guys behind autonomous vehicles in Canada. Okay, I'm going to ask you again. How did you manage this? I kind of know a guy. Okay. Who are very big fans of the podcast, by the way. Okay, cool. So we are close to 50%. Right. We we now have the flights to get us down there and okay. back, for that matter. Okay. And our uh, ace listener and patron of the show, Victor Biggio, says he's talking this week with his contacts at the Palm Hotel. The Palms. I like the Palms. Palms. Yeah. And might be able to get us a bit of a deal so that uh, these donations from the listeners on the GoFundMe campaign and the sponsorship that we got from APMA, and of course we still need more, um, mm. will go a little bit longer, a little further, be able to maybe stay an extra night. So I could go see David Lee Roth. You could go see Diamond Dave shake his booty like the gigolo that he is. Because be happy to do that. Uh, I am going to be talking to somebody in the next two weeks about this sort of thing. So I'm hoping that maybe I can backfill this a bit. That would be awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, want to give us a hint at all uh, other than... No, I, I, it's, it's, uh, it is a company that deals with um, audio video gear and they will be at CES as well. So every dime that gets donated to the big show gets plowed right back into it if you go to geeksandbeats.com right at the top of the website there is a click here type button to get you to support us to send us to ces so the goal of course is ten thousand dollars we're about 35 to 45 percent of the way there now between what apma is going to be sponsoring the show for and what we're uh, currently pulling in from the gofundme and from patreon and PayPal. Great. Okay. So maybe this isn't a pipe dream. Maybe we're actually going to make this happen. This is going to happen. So we would appreciate your support getting uh, us to CES 2020 so that we can report on all the super cool stuff that's going to be down there. Of course, I'm very much interested in uh, augmented reality, virtual reality, autonomous vehicles as well. And I can only imagine you are going to make a beeline for the sex bot. No, I'm not. I'm more interested in the audio video gear. The sex Anything bots are going to be there, man. There was a I big know, I don't care. We spoke with Laura DiCarlo about how the CES people had given her company that had made a, a sex toy for women uh, with teledildonics in mind, that's the underlying technology, an award... Uh, and then they had taken it back after they had realized what they had done or somebody had, you know, come down from on high. That created a huge kerfuffle. And as a result, they got their award back. And so I have a funny feeling CES is going to be very pro. Yeah, we remember that. Yep, very pro uh, sex bot technology this year. I mean, it's not. Yay. Okay, good. Yay. <laughs> Hey, you're the one who keeps bringing it up. I don't... Fine. I'll report back. Is there a phone call you need to take? No. <laughs> oh, is that the dog snoring? That's the dog snoring, and I'm just looking over the shoulder. Oh, I, I thought it was the vibration on your phone. <laughs>
No, no, that's uh, Shmoo. She's under the console here sleeping. Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Or stream us live at geeksandbeats.com. Support the show on Patreon and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for a daily dose of the world's most popular podcasts with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.